0: Hello, this is Vulnerability Matters from the Money Advice Trust, our podcast series which examines from a range of different perspectives, how firms are tackling the issue of consumers in vulnerable situations. Today's podcast was recorded in front of a live internet studio audience, bringing together people from across the UK, so therefore you might notice the sound quality in some parts does reflect this. Hello there, welcome to Vulnerability Matters from the Money Advice Trust. Today we're going to be talking vulnerability and design. Now, the jazz musician Louis Armstrong once said, there are two types of music, the good and the bad. I play the good kind. Clearly the Financial Conduct Authority want us all to connect with our arena Louis Armstrong. In their new vulnerability guidance, GC 20 slash three, the FCA divide design into two types, the good and the bad. And steer firms towards the former in all aspects of their product, service and journey design. However, this raises questions just what is good design when it comes to vulnerability? Is good design the same thing as inclusive design? As the FCA mentioned inclusive design multiple times in their guidance, without ever defining what it means. And who should ultimately decide what good design is and isn't? The regulator, firms, customers, or those sneaky little things called outcome measures and sales figures? To help us consider this, we're joined by Sean Williams. Good morning, Sean. Good morning. Sean is Director of Policy Innovation at Toynbee Hall, where she's worked not just on talking about inclusive design, but practically involving local people in improving the services that Toynbee offer. We've got Tim Hawley. Morning, Tim. Good morning, everyone. Tim is Head of Customer Vulnerability at Capital One, and today he's here, very excitingly, to tell us about Capital One's experience of designing for vulnerability and the launch of a new toolkit and guide for other firms to use in their design work. We've got Bailey Kursar. Morning, Bailey. Morning. Bailey is the founder of Tuco, an award-winning fintech startup, which has been specifically designed to help carers and families manage money better together. Bailey is also writing new guidance for firms on designing for vulnerability. And we've got Rose Chard. Morning, Rose. Morning. Now, Dr. Rose Chard is the lead for the Fair Futures work at Energy Systems Catapult, where our work aims to design and test new ways that energy consumers in vulnerable situations can benefit from technological innovation, new business models and services. And of course, we have also everyone else joining us live today. Please do use the chat or question button on your screen to share your views, your questions and thoughts, and our panel will try and take as many as we can. Okay, I just want to start off with just a... Uh, a question for everyone, and we'll start with Bailey. Uh, When it comes to vulnerability, there's a lot of emphasis on the importance of design, but what does designing for vulnerability mean to you, Bailey?
1: Great question to kick off. I think a lot of the designers that I know would just say it's good design, because really, when a lot of people think about designing products and services, designers think about and focus on the job that the customer wants to achieve, or to put it another way, the task that they're getting done but actually designing for vulnerability is about not just looking at the what and the how but the who and the circumstances behind that person so taking into account the state of mind that that person's in and the barriers that they might be experiencing when they're in different circumstances and they interact with our products and services
0: excellent tim you've heard what baby said but what does designing for vulnerability mean to you
1: yeah, there's, there's two
2: things for me. So firstly, I consider design really the process of just solving for problems. So you've got a process which will look to solve problems. And I think currently we see vulnerability as defined by a specific set of problems, depending on what that vulnerability is. But actually, one thing I'd love to explore on the call today is how much it is around a specific set versus where we've got more commonality of those problems to be solved. And so I think quite frankly, it's how do we go about solving for the needs
3: and for the wants of the many and not just for the few.
0: Interesting. Rose, what does designing for vulnerability mean to you?
3: Yeah, I would a lot of what's already been said, but um, for me in particular, it's a way in which we can acknowledge that as designers of, of products and services, we don't know everything. Uh, And until people actually use what what we've made, um, we need to be in learning mode. um, And we're not the experts that the users uh, are. And that really helps me understand and think about how vulnerability is very dynamic. And as Tim said, it, it can actually, what people are vulnerable to can change over time. It can change as a sector changes. And I think designing um, is a really good way. All the methods involved are a really good way to capture that. Fantastic. And Sean? Thanks.
4: Um, so I think I'll frame it from the person perspective of who we want to design for. So um, if you're designing for me and I am vulnerable to something, then I would expect that whoever I am, whatever my circumstances, if I need what you're designing, I can easily access it and using it helps me thrive. Um, and crucially, your product or service doesn't make my life even harder than my life might already feel occasionally. So it's very much about saying what's the end result for the people that we want to design for. And as well as understanding you know, what their needs are, really kind of. Oh, have you got me? Yep, got me. Oh, sorry. Um, it's, you know, it's really about. Um, of thinking about the outcomes for them and the impact in their life and if you can do that well then you're designing for vulnerability
0: fantastic so we've got good design is good design so there's there's something of the art form in it but we've got that practicality of solving problems and when we're solving for problems we're trying to solve for as many people as we can whilst acknowledging the specific challenge we're acknowledging that we we don't know everything and that involvement and that inclusion is really important of the, the end user. And it's about allowing people to thrive, to not notice the design and to use the product uh, as though the vulnerable uh, the vulnerability to detriment or harm or the difficulty actually doesn't exist. It's, it's, it's overcome within that. So we've got a very good basis here. Now, Bailey, to come back to you, it's inevitable. When it comes to vulnerability in design, There is a lot of terminology. Um, We've got inclusive design, we've got universal design, we've got accessible design, we've got usable design. What do these mean? Are are they different terms for completely different things or are they just interchangeable? Quite
1: confusing, isn't it? (laughs) Um, (laughs) So, Strictly speaking, they're not interchangeable. But they're all related. Um, And luckily, some of the names of these um, bits of jargon give us a clue as to what they refer to. So when we think about universal design, we think about making products usable by the highest number of people. So you can think about that as being a product for the universe, right? Universal. Um, So making decisions about your product that can be helpful to a huge number of people. um, And it could be one feature that can be used by lots and lots of of people in different circumstances. So an example there might be Monzo's pots, savings pots. They're really helpful for um, someone like me to help budget on a day-to-day basis, but I've met people who have compulsive spending issues, bipolar disorder, and they find those pots locked, really, really helpful to help them control their spending as well. When we look at inclusive design, lots of similarities, but inclusive design is just about including people. So more thinking about extremes, edge cases, including their perspective. So we might seek those people out um, and pers- um, specifically designed for that person. So an example there is we at Tuco have worked with the Money and Mental Health Policy Institute. And we did a really in-depth study last year to look at how people with long term mental health issues might use third party access tools. And we, we worked with academics on that as well. Um, the third one that we talk about a lot is accessible design, again the clues in the name, it's about making sure products are accessible and removing barriers for those with specific issues. So sometimes the easiest things to, to describe around accessibility are those with visual impairments or deafness, but it could also be about accessibility from a digital accessibility or exclusion point of view. So really removing those barriers to make sure that people can get access to products. Now, I I reckon for newcomers, if you're listening to this and you're new to the world of design, it's not worth really getting hung up on these different labels. Um, I think that the different methodologies all really look at how we design products and services so they can be used and useful to the widest group of people possible. Um, And the most important thing that they all share is that they all need to include a range of perspectives by talking, sharing, um, getting feedback from customers. So as Rose said before, you know, we are not the experts, the users are. So I think that's what all of these different bits of jargon are pointing towards. So that's what we should really focus
3: on.
0: So, so Tim, uh, Rose and Sean, you have heard that Bailey saying we, we don't need to get hung up on these labels. And we, we might try to bear them all in mind while, while we're designing practically. Where does language fit in here for you? Is it a case of all these terms, they do mean different things, but we're focused on a practical outcome? Or do you switch hats while you're designing? How do you approach this?
2: Um, I'll, I'll jump in on this one. So I'd say you know there's many topics which can get kind of um, mystified with terms. And uh, really the goal, and this is kind of the goal of what we're talking about, inclusive design anyway, is to ensure that it's clear and transparent and easy for our consumers so we don't want to then make the topic itself more complex there's a bit of irony in there but um for me like the use of the language that we put around it should not create any bar- barrier to adoption right if there's a misguided attempt to try and make this topic appear more exclusive than inclusive or um then it's not really going to help anyone and so I-, I see it as these are really good kind of guideposts these are things that that help us but the second that you start letting language get in the way of really what the common goal is which is trying to design to ensure great outcomes for all um, then I think that's the goal that we should go after and then not get too hung up on some of the terminology. Use it to help you.
0: Mm. Rose
3: and Sean. Yeah sure. Um, So I I actually find differences in language really useful. I think definitely we shouldn't get hung up on it and let us stop achieving our goal but as my colleagues will tell you I, I don't have any problem with disagreeing with people overly and i think it can be really helpful to focus us on actually what are we trying to do here so i think um we shouldn't let it we shouldn't let language get in the way of our goal but then when we're kind of in the weeds in the middle of uh, looking at a customer journey or looking at some insights and looking at some research materials it's actually can be really useful to say oh wait a minute what are we what are we talking about here? Are we talking about universal? Are we talking about inclusive? Um, because actually that can tease out uh, within within a team and for your users what you're what you're aiming to do. And they, they can all be slightly different things uh, in what we're aiming to do. So I think it, it can be really useful, but definitely let's not let it get in our way of our goals or stop other people getting involved in design.
0: Well, it's a shame we can't have Louis Armstrong on the panel uh, for you to call him out, Rose. Uh, Sean.
4: <laughs> yeah, this is a really interesting uh, kind of bit the discussion, I think, because as I'm listening, I find myself reacting a bit, um, which is, hang on a minute, we need to make sure that we focus in on uh, making sure that we design for specific vulnerabilities to things. Um, And so when I think about universal design and inclusive design, they, they can get there, but it's, I think, a much longer journey. And so I find myself in this discussion thinking actually accessible design as a term might be where we would traditionally start. And so very specifically thinking about what is the problem that a particular barrier or a particular life circumstance is currently kind of experiencing people so why can't they access the service what needs are not met or what more could be done to make sure that people can thrive and then how do we make sure that services and products are accessible to people in those circumstances and I think if you I think if you kind of start from there as as we probably would now think about it you do still end up at universal design because um, when you design for those specific needs the extra features or extra process that is added into a product or service is normally useful to other people too so I would have said before this conversation I don't really mind about the language um, and now I find myself gravitating more towards accessible the other thing I think is that it's about not just when you're designing but it's also about how you're getting engagement so think about your your kind of target audience when you're trying to get for us, for example, other firms or policymakers or regulators to sign up to something, what terminology fits into their framework and just go with it, even if it's not quite what you were thinking.
0: That's that's fascinating. We're going to be talking about um, some of the processes that um, some of the people on the panel have been through in terms of uh, design, including lived experience. But, uh, Tim, I wanted to turn to you here to tell us about, what you're launching today, and it's this is this is um, something that's been in development for a long time. It's something I'm very interested and in, excited about. I think it's also quite unusual. I'm sure you won't mind me saying this for uh, one firm to share to share its methodological toolkit. So this is a first in many ways. So uh, you've launched this new guide on designing for vulnerability. Can you tell us a bit more about this?
2: Yeah, pleasure. Um, yeah, so, uh, we've been kind of tackling with a lot of what you're hearing on the call, uh, so far, um, for a while. And really today we wanted to go public with kind of sharing our learnings and our experience, uh, around how we've tried to address that. Um, not because we think it's a, you know, the only answer. It's just an answer, which hopefully moves the conversation on. Uh, for a number of people but um, through the money advice trust on uh, your kind of vulnerability resources hub we're going to make available two things one is a handbook about the topic we're talking about today and one is a workshop guide which talks about the practical application of that but let me start with like where you know what led us to this point about a year ago in conjunction with a kind of amazing design team that we have at Capital One we started a project which was looking at how could we make it as simple and easy as possible for all of our employees to kind of build vulnerability considerations into the thousands of decisions that get made you know, every day in terms of improving our products or services. Uh, and the backdrop to this was we did some uh, kind of research in the industry, uh, which was looking at what was consumers' you know, attitudes uh, towards telling financial service providers about uh, their situation. Uh, and out of that, what we found was 89% of consumers had experienced a vulnerability at some point in their life um, which you know uh, might be surprising to some but I guess if you look at some of the common factors like life events like divorce or bereavement you know it would be normal to assume that all of us would experience that. Uh, and 41% had experienced it in the last uh, 12 months, uh, which is in alignment with what the FCA uh, have talked about. But what we also found was that only 3% of them said that they'd told their financial services provider. So you have this situation where a lot of people will experience a vulnerability. But not many people yet feel uh, comfortable, able, or knowledgeable to tell their financial services provider about it. So in that situation, like, what do you do well i think the topic of well build vulnerability considerations in up front rather than only at the point where you know uh, people have a specific need is a way to solve for that but that's like hugely complex um and so the team really took it upon themselves to say well how can we break this down um to solve for that and what they did was in our system of record we have like 69 vulnerable conditions so that could be anything from a health condition like cancer to a situation like financial abuse. Uh, And what they did was kind of try to break those down so that we weren't trying to design for 69 individual situations into what we came out with 10 uh, key behaviors. Uh, An example of one of those behaviors would be like something like comprehension difficulty. So, you know, it doesn't matter if it's because of a low reading uh, level or, you know, something like dyslexia, if you've got literacy or language limitations, uh, or capabilities in terms of financial management you know you can wrap that up into one of 10 key behaviors which was you know comprehension difficulty and when we did that it was a kind of light bulb moment because then suddenly it was a lot you know easier and more accessible for any of our uh, employees to be able to kind of understand what vulnerability means but in a way that then they could do something about so Um, We've wrapped all of that up into kind of three personas that embody those uh, behaviors. Um, And those those personas are really there because that brings it to life and, again, makes it easier for people to engage and assess any product or service against that. And so um, we've kind of set up that there are actually these 10 common behaviors which uh, can cause issue. Um, Here are some personas which embody all of those which you can use to assess in your work. And then what we've done is uh, displayed five simplicity principles, which are kind of answers to those challenges. So a principle like, say, building confidence and trust. So how do I make clear expectations? How do I mentally prepare customers? How do I build confidence in what they're about to experience? And using that really as a way to then help anyone assess what they're building against the kind of harms that could be caused. And so, uh, as I was saying, we've wrapped that all up into a guide which uh, should be available to anyone after uh, this um, uh, webinar today. And um, out of that, really, uh, we, you know, our expectation is that should help a number of organizations to talk about it, challenge it, but build upon that as a way of being able to solve what I think is quite a amorphous complex problem or was at the beginning.
0: So you, you, you've taken the challenge of the 69 vulnerability conditions. You, you identified. You've then boiled them down into 10 key behaviors, which could be um, their challenges. They're uh, kind of, you know, what people might be vulnerable to, things like language or comprehension. You then try to put yourself in the shoes of the consumer, but think about confidence and other uh, aspects through the five simplicity principles and provided in this toolkit for design. How, how are you going to uh, then measure the impact of this? How, what, what, how do we know if this is this, this is working?
2: Yeah, we've well, got measurable impact in terms of, you know, uh, vulnerability as a cultural change program as the FCA have uh, laid out. So you've got measurable impact both within the organization, which is how do we build confidence, how do we build understanding um, and how do we uh, ensure that people or our employees are supported on that journey. So I think that's one measure of success, which is the activity level. The second measure of success is then the outcome, right? which is why are we doing all of that? Well, we're doing it to ensure that our products and our services are there to best support the needs of you know, all consumers, but taking the extreme behaviors of vulnerability, as we've talked about already, to therefore um, help us to say, well, if we design for those extremes, then that mm. means that we'll already support everyone. And so therefore, you're going to be looking at the outcomes of the interaction with the products and services uh, that you have. So. How successful are people with their use of credit? You know, How successful are they in being able to manage their finances? And so a measure of success of all of the places where this will be applied will be on the outcomes of the product itself.
0: Look, Bailey, Rose and Sean, you're listening to this and this is this is unusual. Often these methodologies are, are locked up in firms. Uh, they don't see the, the light of day. So very welcome uh, that this is being shared. But Bailey, perhaps come to you first on this. You've heard what Tim has said here. What's your take on this uh, this blend of behaviours, simplicity principles and personas? Is, Is this the way that people should be proceeding?
1: Yeah. First off, I love the fact that it's being made public. And I think we could all go a long way to make more of what we have internally public. So, yeah, really looking forward to seeing more of this. And I've had the pleasure of having a look at what Tim sent across our Sneaky Peek, um and yeah i think as a person who so my role really is as a product manager and product designer and these are the kinds of the word toolkit is the right word it's it's a toolkit that you can use in the process of thinking about design particularly for people across a wide um organization like capital one who won't be thinking about vulnerability necessarily on a day-to-day basis and i think having those toolkits available for um, these big organisations in particular is really going to be part of that cultural change that the FCA talk about and that Tim just mentioned. So I think it's a really great place to start for trying to embed this into a bigger organisation.
0: Like mm. Bailey, what is a persona? And Tim, maybe you can just explain a little bit more after Bailey's defined that, to just to say how you're using that in, in the toolkit. But Bailey.
1: Yeah, so a persona is, is again, A tool that we use when we're thinking about design to once we've done our first lot of research going out there and reading about the kinds of people who interact with our products um, and probably hopefully speaking to a wide range of people who already interact with our products or who might do then we kind of take all of that down boil it down and create an imaginary person um, or several imaginary people from the all of the um, demographic information all of the behavioral information that we've found through our research and a persona is is a blunt tool it's something that when you when you've created three four five um, you can become a bit uh, over, over um, uh, reliant on just thinking about those three or four people but actually if what you're trying to do is really highlight some behaviors or aspects that people in the organization wouldn't necessarily be thinking about all the time can be a really helpful tool just to get them um, questioning things as they go along. And mm. so, yeah, that's what a persona is designed
0: for. You know, it's, um, it's not the beagle and bend should never be. Fantastic. and how are you, how are you using these personas? Well, can you unpack them a little bit for us?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know anyone who downloads the toolkit will have the pleasure of meeting Lena, Faisal and George that are our three personas um and you know it gives the situational background about you know what their family situation is what's happening in their life um uh, from Lena's perspective she's you know recently divorced lives in London uh you know uh, has polish as her first language and and we use all of that to kind of help people get into the shoes of someone who may be experiencing some challenges and then in the workshop guide what you do is that enables you to then look at either a process or a product and assess well how much does that journey that experience help Lena in her situation or how much could that um, impact and impede Lena using those behaviors that we talked about so you know you get to kind of put yourself in Lena's shoes you then get to assess against those behavioral dimensions that we talked about. And out of that workshop guide, it will show you where you can highlight areas for further improvement, opportunities to go further. And because those 10 behaviors are wrapped up in all of those three personas, we know that we've given complete coverage. So um, that guide would help anyone put a practical application to some of the more theoretical things that we talk about.
0: You can get the guide from the MoneyViceTrust.org slash vulnerability um, after, after this uh, webinar. Has finished, Sean. I wanted to bring you in here because it links in really neatly uh, with what Tim was saying there about the uh, the toolkit, and we were talking about personas. Now, personas clearly have a place, but you've been involved in designing services at Toynbee Hall for some time now, um, involving people with lived experience uh, rather than personas. Can you just tell us a bit more about this process and the work you've done around including local people and the methodology you've used?
4: Sure. Um, and, yeah, just thinking about the personas and I was just thinking about um, how lucky we are at Toynbee to be able to be rooted in a community and to be able to work directly with, with people really easily. What uh, is
0: Toynbee, just for those who don't know?
4: Just, oh, just a good question. Question. Uh, East London. So um, we're in the kind of the east end of London in one of the most deprived areas in the country Um, and we've been there since 1884 uh, trying to kind of tackle systemic poverty so um, yeah we haven't succeeded yet so when we think about how we work at Toynbee I guess we we have a few approaches and we've been testing out different approaches over the last decade or so and it often depends on kind of a few key things so who we're trying to um, kind of work with What issues or barriers they're currently experiencing or could exist if you got the design of something wrong? And then at what point in a process are you working? So, you know, very often, um, although the ideal is that you always want to do inclusive design and, and kind of accessible design from before, Uh, You know, right from the beginning of the process. um, Often that's not going to be the case either for us or other organisations because you've already been doing something for a while um, or you've got a product that you've realised there's an issue with. So you do need to think about at what point in the process you are. And also that matters because when you're working with people themselves rather than personas, Um, there's something around not over promising too early about what can happen Mm -hmm. and, and what changes can happen and that isn't about limiting expectations but it is about not making people feel unnecessarily frustrated so it's about kind of being honest and I think I'd always start from there it's about starting with a relationship and we're lucky because we can build relationships they take time and we have to work really hard at it and we must never take them for granted but but we do so the relationships around trust openness empowerment and real ownership for people of the process we can talk more about that in a minute if that's useful we think about building skills um so we don't think about working with people with lived experience as they're the they're kind of static we always ask kind of what can we do to help you build your skills to engage in the process? So critical thinking, sharing their views, challenge, um, and then how you how you kind of develop solutions and ideas. We're always committed to being really curious um, to finding the real issues, not just kind of stopping at the first or second easy answer. And then finally, you know, we kind of always think about what more can we do? Like what, How can we learn from what we've just got with people? Um, to take it into something broader. So it might be about policy change, not just about a service delivery, for example. So we're, we're very fluid in our process. Um, and we, we use it both when we're designing things that we want to do, but also we run a service for firms to come in and access directly people in the community who kind of been trained to be part of this process. Um, and we're supported partly through that for, um, by Fair by Design, but also we do that for firms individually.
0: That's really interesting. Maybe you can give us a concrete example of something you've worked on here to give us some, some color and detail. I'm just interested about the numbers of people, uh, the amount of time. This isn't a one-off focus group with six people. This is something, uh, deeper. And there's that, that term co-production, which you can s- uh, make your heart sing or send a shiver down your spine. It sounds the involvement is, is, is deep here. Is that right?
4: Yeah. And it, it does depend on the, issue and the topic because people's ability to engage will will vary and we always respect that so um for example um when we were working on how do we improve our debt advice service what can we do differently we um we went out and re-engaged with people who had been through the debt advice process and were now kind of out of crisis and out of all of that kind of cognitive load of debt crisis And then got them to kind of feedback to us and work with us on redesigning the process so that if they had had to go through it in an idealized world, what would that look like? And then we used that to change our processes. And some of those have stayed on um, in a kind of support group around our debt advice improvement program. And and some of them have disengaged, and that's absolutely fine. When we've worked with uh, kind of external products and services, so for example, When we thought around uh, accessing banking, um, what we've done there is done a deep dive with people around what the specific issues that you're facing. And so, for example, one of the things that came out of that was direct debits not working for people. Um, And this first came up 10 years ago. And we've worked really hard over the last 10 years with the payments industry to make sure that that problem gets solved. And that's now finally resulted in request to pay Um, and the work that we did on that kind of informed that process but it also meant that we were able to help designers in pay.uk really hear about the true problems that people were having so sometimes it's ongoing engagement sometimes it's one-off input um, and sometimes it's it's um, kind of flex for people they might come back at different times and the crucial thing is we always now offer to cover people's time at the London living wage rate. Um, mm. We do that in a form of a gift or a voucher that will work for them. Um, there's a big issue there around not tripping up people over benefit entitlement, um, but we feel quite um, kind of powerfully that if you recognize that someone has lived experience and that is a valuable um, kind of contribution, that they should be um, you know, recompensed for that.
0: Absolutely. And it's a very interesting model um, and an alternative for firms to go to rather than turning to a market research company that perhaps uh, doesn't always have that depth of engagement with people. Um, Tim, Rose and Bailey, you've been listening to that. I'm going to turn to Rose first here. Uh, Rose, uh, you're not an outsider. You're very much part of the, uh, the the vulnerability collective, but you work in energy. When you've heard Tim and Bailey and Sean speak there about the processes of involving vulnerable consumers in designing products, what, what can we learn from Energy in your work.
3: Yeah, thanks, Chris. Yeah, it's been a really interesting um, conversation. Really great points have been raised. It's really great to hear Sean talking about that deep engagement. Um, so at the Catapult, we have something we call the Living Lab, which is it sounds very similar to what Sean was describing, and it's a hundred uh, homes around England and Wales that we have a uh, long-term engagement with and uh, out. A third parties uh, can come and work with uh, these people in their homes to uh, either design their, their product if they've got an idea um, or to test it and, and learn. Um, and that's really important in the energy space because there are um, some uh, issues or problems or learnings will only come up when somebody's been using something for quite a long time, um, like relatively compared to going in and doing a focus group or doing market research. Um, so, so at Energy Systems Catapult, the Living Lab is um, a really great resource that we have to enable others to engage with people with, with lived experience. Um, the other, the other point I really like that, um, Tim Race and is in, in the document, um, that he's put together is this focus on behaviours. Um, in the energy sector, we I don't know how to say it, but we, we focus a lot on labelling people as, as vulnerable people, vulnerable households. Um, but as, uh, everyone will know, vulnerability for a lot of people isn't part of their identity and it's not, it's not reflective of their experience for us to label them in that way. So the focus on behaviors rather than assuming that it's part of their identity and it's static and it's never changing, I think is really nice. And I would love to see more work in the energy sector focus on behaviors like, like Tim's document describes than, um, demographic characteristics or alone, at least. Um, yeah, I, I just think that was, that's a really great point that we should all learn a lot from. Mm.
0: Now we, we, we've heard here about the choices that firms have had, and I'll open this up now. And this, this is building on questions from Mark, uh, Rob, and I'll come to David's in a moment that have uh, come in. We've got the option uh, personas, uh, an option of lived experience. Uh, Rose mentioned um, uh, an ethnographic immersion. Um, you know, uh, replicating or going into people's homes. I guess we've also got the option. This is really interesting around vulnerability in the current time about remote testing, where we can actually involve people in situations simply who, if they can use the the technology and they can access that to um, be involved in this. And we've got that data desk research. So there's lots of choices. Um, so, Bailey, kind of, um, should we be cheapskates and just go for looking at external data and things that have been published before? Or should we be blending these together? How, how, how do we how do we put the choices together and the options? Maybe you can talk about some of your work there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So it's an easy choice for me. You know, I would want to blend some of these different ways of thinking together, and every firm is going to have different challenges when it comes to how you actually embed these um, these tools, the, the understanding around vulnerability into the design process. I think one thing that we haven't talked about yet that definitely needs to get flagged is that most firms, um, maybe all firms, they have some limits as to what they can actually practically achieve during the design process and some limits as to what what's possible. Um, because in an ideal world, we would be using all of these different types of research methodologies. We would employ really good, excellent experts you know in these different fields and we would be looking at people with lived experience from a wide wide range of of backgrounds and and potential vulnerabilities but practically I know from working with firms that um, they're quite time pushed they have specific things that they want to to test and look at and it's um, also a budget constraint as well so it's really trying to find how we can um, how we can find the best of both worlds and integrate some of what's available out there um, and use the expertise from people like Rose and Sean um, in, uh, in, in firms as well as doing our own research. Um, and I think sometimes it can feel a bit overwhelming. you know I can imagine someone listening to this podcast and feeling a bit like, actually I need to be doing 100 things and it's all going to cost a lot of money. So maybe one thing to take away is, you know, how can you reach, um, people in these different communities or different underserved, um, communities or, uh, people with specific vulnerabilities and get their perspective if that's not something that your firm is already yeah. doing, whether that's working with an outside agency, working with, um, people like Toynbee Hall, um, or doing it internally. There are lots of ways that we can do that. Um, and yeah, that just to talk about Tuco's experience. So, we were lucky about a year and a half ago to get some funding from Nationwide Building Society to work with Money Mental Health Policy Institute, and that enabled us to tap into their research community, um, so people with lived experience, and really work with them in order to do surveys, speak one on one, and then eventually pilot the first version of our app with a small group of people, going into a lot of detail um, in in a in a 3 month research pilot so um it's been a process that we've learnt a lot from and we've continued to build that in as we've built the products since but i think finding the lessons from that for firms for different types of projects some of which will take years some firms have you know year long um ambitions for products and sometimes a design process needs to be done in 2 weeks so mm. how do you how do you find the different tools that relate um so you know to summarize Tim's um toolkit is one really great way to get started in in those shorter projects and and some of the more in-depth things that Rose and Sean have been talking about are things that we need to get firms um, interested in on a more ongoing basis and, and a longer time frame so um, yeah I think that's the challenge
0: thanks thanks uh Bailey Tim you're being referenced and cited here a lot um Clearly at Capital One, you don't just use those three uh, personas for all of your design work. I wondered more broadly how you are, how you're choosing when to maybe use internal data uh, and insights, external data, uh, uh, market research, engaging with charitable organizations. What's the approach there?
2: Yeah, um, great question. So uh, firstly, I'm going to give a, amazing shout out to what i think is a brilliant design team that we have at capital one and we're very fortunate to have uh, access uh, to that and um, and actually i think they're hiring as we speak As a plug for those guys but um <laughs> one of the one of the things which uh, we talk about is what we've published today is actually framing for how do we put that in the hands of many people making decisions where we don't Uh, need everyone to become deep experts or we want to make it as easy for them as possible so uh, everything that that others have said is right that the toolkit we launch isn't the only thing it is there to solve the problem of how do you put it in the hands of the many so that they can include vulnerability more easily and do that Mm. in a structured way the other things that you guys have talked about about lived experience you know ethnographic research remote testing they're all things that we have access to and very fortunate to and use but like all kind of tools you've got to choose the right tool for the right problem Um, and you've also got to figure out how much you can afford at at whatever time both from a kind of timeline perspective but also from a money perspective and so at capital one we have a good rigorous design process you know for certain projects you know, we will engage with that design team and they would take through the appropriate tools what we've launched today is something which can be used by you know a number of people whether you have deep experience in design or not um, but it helps therefore break down some barriers does that help frame mm. the question
0: no absolutely I, I think it's very interesting that in the FCA and their cost-benefit analysis, uh, indicated there would be, uh, no ongoing costs for vulnerability and design. Uh, do tell me if I've got that wrong, but uh, pouring through it the other night, um, it's down as a one-off cost. But what I'm hearing from everybody, uh, on, on, on the call is that this, this is a cycle. This isn't just do it once and then you've, uh, you've designed for vulnerability. This is something that you need to repeat to different levels of, and degrees of depth. For each product uh, product, each service, each journey—is is that right? Yeah,
1: absolutely, and the FCA, um, I in fact say that in the guidance. So, you know, the, the section on product and service design is really about the process and a repeatable process. It's so important that it's it's an ongoing effort.
4: Mm. Can I just add on that? That I think um, the great thing about it is that you're building your knowledge all the time as you move through you know, designing different products and services or different features, you're able to take the knowledge that you've got through previous design uh, processes with you. And so, you know, at Toynbee, when we're running a workshop for a firm, it's only going to cost the firm a couple of hundred pounds to come in and get direct experience from people with lived experience of this specific issue. And those light bulb moments are amazing. And so kind of thinking about what's the right approach I definitely agree that it's blended. And I'd much rather that a firm came to us and said, you know, so we've got this level of knowledge and we've got these questions that we'd like to check with people. Um, and for me, that kind of open minded inquiring approach is amazing Um, we had an example where we worked with an energy firm who were designing a a new kind of meter and it was for gas for big uh, central boilers and it was a great product and and the lived experience experts loved it but what they clocked was that it depended on having an electricity supply and when they said well what happens when my electricity meter switches off because I haven't been able to feed the meter the designer was completely nonplussed because he'd never heard of the idea that someone on a prepayment meter mm-hmm. might not have electricity um, mm-hmm. and realized that he needed to put a battery in his smart meter. And, you know, that one that one conversation changed his design and made it accessible and inclusive in a way that he just hadn't kind of really understood. Mm-hmm. So I do think it's a blended approach. And, and I think the idea that... Um, market research with people is really expensive is actually just part of a business model. And there are different business models
0: to do it more, kind of more quickly and more um, affordable. Mm, absolutely. And, uh, you know, we would get 10 new reports released every week, I think, if some financial service organisations publish their market research around vulnerability. But that's uh, that's probably a different conversation. I just wanted to we're, we're all very ethnographically minded here. No, we're leaning to the qualitative left um where, where, where does the quantitative data come in where do we uh where, where where do we build in how do we use uh in the best possible way uh, the quant data that is available to us internally or externally who wants to pick that one up
4: um i've got a thought on on how that works in across the sectors rather than individually in firms mm. if it's helpful yeah yeah um so very often what i think is that um Innovation gets stuck because of the barriers between firms and where there's synergies or there's reliance to be able to make something happen. It's particularly in the payments industry, um, but it happens in other industries, in other parts of the industry, too. And so I think for me, that's definitely one of the areas where using large data sets to demonstrate that um, the number of people experiencing an issue or the number of people likely to experience an issue so, for example, when we were looking at things like request to pay or confirmation of payee, all of which really support people with particular kind of vulnerabilities to um, uh, to debt or to fraud, um, being able to demonstrate to the industry that it might not be in one firm's business case interests to go it alone on this. But across the industry, it would release real savings and real kind of engagement. So for, for us, we often think in that way around large data sets.
0: Mm, I think there's
4: uh,
2: plenty plenty of measures uh, that we can uh, use within it and some of them are where we apply measures to sentiment so where we ask customers how easy or effortless did they find that service did they get the outcome that they wanted um, but we can still put that on a scale that tells us whether things are getting better or worse we can use measures which again we were talking about outcomes from the product so How about people's ability to, you know, pay on time, pay down, and so, you know, they're the functional aspects of whether good design is promoting the outcomes that we and the customer uh, would like, and so I think they're the elements that uh, help you to understand how it's performing against what we hope would be a great design.
3: Quant data can be really useful for capturing. And dovetailing with the lived experience, but capturing things that people themselves uh, would struggle to capture. So one of the things we often use is um, sensor data in people's homes about how they heat their homes to understand what temperatures they heat their their home to. Because what we find actually is when you ask someone what temperature do you heat their home to, that's assuming often that they've got a thermostat or that their thermostat has numbers on. Which I'm sure lots of people listening will have seen and used thermostats that don't have any numbers on, which is shocking in lots of ways, but it's because the numbers aren't important to their experience of whether they're warm or not. But mm-hmm. as designers, we need to know what outcome they're aiming for. So having that quant data alongside lived experience um, is really, really valuable. And yeah, they just, the Different methods are doing or different results are doing different things
0: for us. Hmm. OK, F- focus your minds here uh, and I'm going to stay with you, Rose, and then uh, and then go to uh, Bailey, uh, Tim and then Sean. If there's one example of designing for vulnerability out there that everyone listening should take inspiration from, go have a look, uh, go poke around, go find out more about what would it be?
3: Chris, thanks. That, that's a really great question. Um, for me, it's uh, really some of the work around making technology for people simple to use, technology that might be very complex for the sector to put in place doesn't necessarily need to be complex for a person to use Um, and there are some there are too many examples for me to possibly name Um, but there are some great ones Um, one of the the companies and innovations I really love is called Switchy uh, with a double e at the end Um, and that for me really uh, solves some great problems for people so for instance um, one of the, the great features that Uh, It can be used to do is to uh, alert the resident to when their gas safety check has been booked, but uh, the, the, um, the device on the wall actually allows them to say, actually, this time isn't great for me, which is good for them. And it's good for the engineers that otherwise might turn up on the doorstep and there's nobody there and they can't get into the property. And that's it's quite a large expense for wasted time. So whilst that communication seems quite simple or like a, a simple thing, it can it can ha, it can be very valuable to both the users being the residents in their homes and the engineers going out.
0: Fantastic. Bailey, one, one, one quick example from you too.
3: So many examples.
1: Um, but one
0: that springs to mind that was actually in in on
1: Wired.co.uk this week from Monzo, um, and I was learning about from Natalie there last week was they are they've just launched a feature called Share with Us, which is specifically designed to help victims of economic and financial abuse find a discreet place in the Monzo app um, away from the customer service. Uh, chat so that it doesn't have a trace if that if their abuser were to see this in the app um, to notify Monzo that there is an issue and then there are specific features and processes that Monzo have tried to design for that group to try and make sure that they can protect those those consumers and um, it's a really great uh, little case study I'll um, happily share the link with, with Chris as well uh, to have a read about that. Um, no, fantastic. They use that, code
0: words as well don't they? There's a code yeah, word element to it, it as well.
1: It's, it's a great example of specifically thinking about a group of people in vulnerable circumstances and designing for them. You know, This is a feature that doesn't apply to a lot of other people but actually will really make a huge
0: difference to this group. Excellent. Tim, clearly your toolkit but one example that stands out for you aside from that. Okay.
2: I'm going, to go, uh, I'm going to go left field, I'm going to talk about the exciting topic of kitchen appliances um, and I'll explain why. So uh, in the 90s, OXO Good Grips, we've been talking about this internally to try and bring uh, to life about inclusive design, but uh, back in the 90s you could really only like get those rubbish peelers which used to be really hard and uh, the inventor, his, his wife had arthritis and was struggling massively was a product designer and she just got frustrated and said, like, surely you can make this easier. I'm struggling here. Um, and so he went away and like redesigned the peeler. Um, and uh, it then become like, it, you know, international bestseller, uh, all of that. And the reason why I raise it is not because um, it's you know, particularly exciting or your listeners might want to know more about uh, kitchen appliances. It's actually the one concept, which is it was designed with arthritic users in mind. It was never marketed as an arthritic product because they saw it as stigmatizing. Uh, and as a consequence of that, people with arthritis didn't feel bad about using it. People didn't go, I don't have arthritis, I'm not going to bother. But what you actually end up with is a great design product that helped the masses and kind of is a really inspirational, I think, example of why we need to focus on this design for the extremes because it will help mm. all. So there you go. Potato peelers. Thanks,
0: Tim. Potato, Sean, can you beat a potato peeler?
4: I'm going to stick with something that I'm really passionate um, to see kind of translate into real life, which is the request to pay service. And the reason that I think it's a really good example of, of great design for vulnerability is because it began with understanding one really specific problem around recurring payments for people on unpredictable incomes and the fact that the payer and the payee have no way to talk to each other if a direct debit failed. And so the the firm had no idea what was going on, and the the customer was probably in a really kind of um, stressed state. Yeah. And that journey has led to the development of a new payment standard, um, which will be so beneficial not just to people in particular circumstances, but generally across the the population as more people move into um, the kind of gig economy or Uh, you know different kind of payment and income fluctuations so i would definitely urge people to go and look at the um request to pay website and the the kind of key person behind it who's just worked on it for years um from the very beginnings of an idea and has just been completely committed and has spoken to thousands and thousands of people in different formats
0: to make sure that it meets who is it um, sean What is it Oh, his
4: name is Simon Brooks, and he's the most amazing man. And Fantastic.
0: I, Simon, we yeah. hope you're listening. It's kind of a right ten, ten seconds. This is the last question. Ten seconds only each. Um, Sean, I'm going to start with you. Um, we started our discussion by asking, what does designing for vulnerability mean? Uh, you've heard what everyone has said. Have you changed your mind? What does vulnerability, uh, designing for vulnerability, mean to you, Sean?
4: I don't think I've changed my mind, but I think I have got excited about the fact that firms have moved on and are not um, kind of thinking of it maybe as an add-on, but kind of starting to move or, or in the space of thinking that it's really important, and that makes me really excited.
0: Fantastic, Tim. Ten seconds.
2: Okay, uh, it's made me think it's less about great design for vulnerability, and it's now more about using vulnerability to create great design.
0: Oh, nomic. I like it. I like it. It's a rose.
3: I really like the idea that accessible design can be a starting point um, and then other forms of, of designing for vulnerability can come after that. I'm excited to to think that through in my work in the coming months.
0: Fantastic. And Bailey?
3: Yeah,
1: I think actually we started off talking about language and I was thinking that it wasn't that important. But coming away from this, I do think that trying to frame things from an absolute designing for a vulnerable circumstances versus the more inclusive and universal frames of mind they're two different cats that we can take on and off and i think maybe that is something we all need to think about a bit more
0: lovely and and talking of cats um hopefully everyone has now managed to find their inner Louis Armstrong and for that, to thank our panelists Sean Williams, Rose Chard, Bailey Curson, Tim Hawley and everyone who contributed today. If you want to find out more about our work including the toolkit go to moneyadvicetrust.org slash vulnerability. If you want to hear other podcasts and other vulnerability related subjects maybe it's just not enough vulnerability in your life search for Vulnerability Matters on your podcast platform of choice. Until then uh, keep safe, keep up the good work and we'll see you again. Thank you.